Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are on the Wednesday after the Thursday before, so we know a little bit more about the future direction of British politics, but not a huge amount. We still don't know what deal has been struck between the Tories and the DUP. We've been asked to say a little bit more about who we are before we start. So let me briefly introduce who we have here today, Helen Thompson, who knows a lot about the Euro, among other things. I watched another episode of Twin Peaks and I was even more confused than I was about episode five. <laughs> and it was very gory this time as well, stabbings and very <laughs> dark, disturbing episode. Chris Bickerton, who is an expert on European politics and on populism. Uh, I didn't mark scripts, I marked scripts the night before, so I just read my newspaper. <laughs> your newspaper, your, your newspaper, the one that you own in, yeah. in Holland. Hugo Dreschel. Does it work? Okay. Who has been writing about the French elections for the New Statesman and also works on a project here in Cambridge about conspiracy theories for people who like that kind of thing. And Chris Brooke, political theorist, but also who knows a lot about the inner workings of British politics at the local level. So um, I had a rather extraordinary <laughs> journey that I travelled from Milwaukee to Cambridge and I got stuck overnight in Toronto and I had to make it back to Cambridge in order to attend an exam yesterday and then I turned up at the wrong venue. (laughs) And missed the exam. Yes. (laughs) We want to take a step back however and think a little bit because we could talk forever about what might come next and then we'll get it wrong. What might this mean more broadly for the politics of the left, we'll start with that. And we're going to talk a little bit about Macron in a second. Hugo's been writing about the latest round of the French elections and the amazing triumph of Macron's new, is it now a party? It's a movement and a party. But before we get on to that, a lot of people have been very excited on the left about what Corbyn's amazing outperforming of expectations might mean for left-wing parties or left-wing movements in other places. For instance, a lot of people, I think I would include myself in this, think, wow, Bernie really could have won. But in other places too, the long-term story about the decline of social democracy has had a jolt in the last week. It's really hard to know what the lesson is, because in different places, you get different versions of this. In our political system, because it's a two-party system, if you're going to revive the left, it's got to be through the Labour Party. But as we'll see with Macron in a second, and it's not at all clear Macron is the left anymore. But the French case is to abandon the mainstream Social Democratic Party and to try something new. But again, in America, because it's a two-party system, it's almost certainly got to go through the Democratic Party. And then in proportional systems in other places in Europe, Social Democratic Party still look like they're on the retreat. Does anyone have a clear sense of what the lesson is here? And I'm guessing there isn't one lesson well, I think one lesson is is that there is a real difference in politics between what is possible, um, or in democratic politics, I should say, is possible in countries that are in the Eurozone and countries that are not. And obviously the United States and Britain are not in the Eurozone, and I think that that makes it possible for the centre-left to pull further to the left than they could in systems, effectively, where economic options are entirely constrained or almost entirely constrained by the eurozone rules so is it that if say like melange in france if you're going to make this appeal from the left you also have to say you're basically going to exit the eurozone Absol- and that frightens absolutely people i mean in, in in that case you you've you've got i think a double problem is you've got the fear factor that's generated by the fact that you would have to leave the eurozone to do any of these things 
and at the same time you've got something that is constraining the existing centre-left party, in this case the Socialists in France, who'd spent you know, the last five years of you know, Hollande's presidency unsuccessfully trying to reform the French economy to get it into a position where it could challenge Germany, or at least they believed that they could challenge Germany um, over, the, over the future of the Eurozone, and that ended in failure. So you've got something that actually produces failure for centre-left parties, and at the same time you've got a, a whole lot more fear associated with moving further to the left. So there are two things that the UK and the US have in common. Neither are in the Eurozone. And both are two-party, first-past-the-post systems, because that's the other potential saviour of the left, which is, if it's not one party, it has to be the other. And if the other can be taken over by the further left faction, that faction has a chance of power, as is clearly true in this case. I mean, we now are in a country where it's more than possible that Jeremy Corbyn will be prime minister. But I think what's interesting is that both of those reasons, and I I agree with what Helen said, I agree with what David said, aren't actually really to do with the left, if you think about it. I mean, one is to do with the electoral system and how that binds parties together or not, creates opportunities for new parties or doesn't. And the other is to do with a a monetary system, an exchange rate, a currency. So I'm pretty sceptical, I think, that this is actually a lesson for the left as a political tradition, as a set of ideas. Um, I think that's what I would be uh, interested in actually questioning. We've seen an unexpected success for a left-wing party. What it tells us about the future of the left, the state of the left, I'm much less clear. And is that question only going to be answered when one of these kinds of politicians or parties wins? Because, I mean, we've had a test in the United States about what happens when an outsider insurgent takes over the Republican Party. It doesn't look pretty. But we don't really know what any of this means for the left until someone tries governing. And tries to do things that are recognisably associated with politically the left. But I think the, the concept of the left is you know, it's a big thing. It implies people's loyalties, people's identity. It implies a certain amount of stability in the way people see the world. It's a worldview. It's all these things. And what we're seeing is huge amounts of volatility, determined often by, you know, policy frameworks, by electoral systems. But I don't think we're seeing the revival or the resurgence of a long-standing political tradition. That would be my view. One of the most important academic papers that was ever written about public opinion in, in this country came at the end of the eight, 1980s, and it was by Ivor Crewe, and it was a paper called Has the Electorate Become Thatcherite? And it reviews a lot of uh, evidence that shows that even after the better part of a decade of Mrs Thatcher's government, public attitudes remained substantially unchanged from what they'd been in the 1970s. The British people retained, broadly speaking, social democratic instincts. And it's well worth remembering that, that... For all that we've heard about Thatcherism and, well, New Labour and uh, more recently neoliberalism, these have been elite movements. These have been ideas that technocrats and policymakers and political elites have been far more interested in than anything that's reflected in mass public opinion. And I think we are seeing a situation where the enormous levels of debt that young people have run up through education, the problems of the housing market in particular, the precarity of various parts of the labour market, have produced these big swings, not just among the young voters, 18 to 24, the most recent figures suggest that actually turnout levels weren't as high as they'd been initially reported, but lots and lots of voters in their 20s and 30s and early 40s seem to be the people who swung hardest from the Conservatives to Labour, and they were, if, if they didn't deliver Jeremy Corbyn his victory, 
those were the votes that saved the Labour Party from defeat, and those seem to be the people for whom a fairly old-fashioned kind of social democracy is really very appealing indeed. I think that there's another side of that which I don't think is actually different to what Chris is saying, it's just the, the flip side of that. I still think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this performance of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was born out of Theresa May's hubris. And I still think it is the case that if the clock had been stopped at the point before the Conservative manifesto had been published, that this election would have yielded a substantial Conservative majority. So two things here. First of all, there was only an election because the Prime Minister thought that the Labour Party was in such a weak state that she would win a large majority. And secondly, because she thought she was going to win such a large majority, she thought she could trade a substantial part of it away, taking on part of the Conservatives' core vote amongst elderly voters, not just about social care, but about the triple lock and winter fuel allowance as well, and allowed the Conservative Party in Scotland to have a different position on winter fuel allowance, which always seemed to me to be absurd at the time, as if the weather is somehow different, you know, like in Lindisfarne than it is in Roxburgh. But is is that this performance of... Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was handed to it by the misjudgment, a profound misjudgment that the the leader of a centre-right party made and that misjudgment was born out of belief that the left was effectively dead. I think we can all probably agree there's a complication here is that there's a tendency when you want to take a step back that what you look at is the kind of middle range of political events and look at trends over maybe months and years and it's possible that the real story is either much longer term than that as Chris was suggesting we're talking about generational shifts or much shorter term than that which is that actually this story has been entirely shaped by the contingencies of the last month and we would as as we know we would say in the American case had Hillary won we would be having a completely different story about the state of democracy around the world and here we are a month ago it was a different world and it's not that the world has fundamentally changed in that time that's one of the reasons politics is so interesting and so complicated and so easy to get wrong. So let's talk about Macron now for a few minutes, because that's the other very different way that this could go with a collapsing mainstream Social Democratic Party and someone who was part of that world making a break for the exits and amazingly managing to create a movement which has swept all before it and has now triumphed in the elections to the legislature, though you go on a low turnout. So on the one hand, it's an amazing story of destroying the opposition, but it's not a story of overwhelming enthusiasm. Going back to your original question about can we draw comparisons between what happened in France and what happened in the UK, I think one way of thinking about this is tactical voting. The French Socialist Party has always been, there's always been a rift between its more radical and more reformist wing. And that's been going on for a very, very long time. So the death of the Socialist Party has been announced a number of different times. Now it's actually happened. Now it's dead. Now it's dead in the sense that all the reformist wing has gone with Macron and all the kind of more radical wing has gone with Mélenchon. Why? Because Benoit Hamon simply just didn't seem like a very convincing candidate. And just to be clear, so the Mélenchon wing, his, his movement now, it got around, is it right, 13% of the vote, which is pretty impressive in its way, or not? And what's interesting also, it's kind of mirrors, actually, so Front National and both both got 13%, right? And then you have La République en Marche, so Macron's new movement got 32%. It's projected to have over 400 of the deputies on Sunday, which is huge. This has happened a couple of times before, but it's obviously Macron's been able to hoover up the centre-right and the centre-left. So and, and a lot of French voters then said, OK, well, we know things have 
I think you can put this one in the context of Brexit and Trump, which is that Marine Le Pen was the one who was leading for a long time. So the question is, okay, that's what you need to fight back against. And thus, there was a lot of tactical voting going on for left-wing voters, socialist voters. And would you say that these people in their mind think that what they've done is they've lent their vote to this new movement to give it a chance, but it is it is very much lent and it could easily be cooled in again. Oh, absolutely. I think it's important to remember when the French has this kind of convention that because the president is the first that's selected, normally then that person is given a majority to fulfill their their program. And that systematically happened. The turnout is an interesting question because the people who voted for Macron for the presidentials actually did come out to vote. The vote collapsed on the extremes. That is to say, the people who voted for Mélenchon and the people who voted for Marine Le Pen, those are the people who didn't come out to vote. There's lots of reasons for that. It's obviously very hard when you have kind of parties that are associated with a certain type of personality to convert that into legislative votes. But I think part of the reason for that is because they didn't want to caution this this type of presidential majority that was going to come out. So there's a lot of waiting back. People are saying, okay, we're going to give him his chance, see what happens. But if it doesn't work, then we're going to take it back. I think what's going to happen also then in the next couple of weeks is because there's such a predominant majority in in Parliament, the protest, the real fight back is going to be as it always has been in France on the streets, in particular with um, the labour reforms. And you wrote the word you use for this new government is technocratic. This is a revival in France for now anyway of technocracy. It's made up of the enarchs and the people, you know, from a particular strand of the higher education system. It's it's very much gambling that experts do know what they're doing. But looked at from the outside, what makes it different from other kinds of technocracy is technocracy is often a way of bypassing parliamentary or legislative politics. And this is technocracy where you stuff the legislature with people who are outside of professional politics and are meant to bring into that a certain kind of knowledge or understanding of the world, which isn't normally there. And I couldn't think of a parallel for this. Maybe there are ones where it's it's technocracy through elected representatives rather than technocracy to bypass the stupidity of the people or whatever it is that's normally. Is this genuinely a new kind of experiment in democratic technocracy? I agree with Hugo's reading of the, the Macron government and also the Macron majority, if you like, as having this technocratic quality to it. But what I think we're seeing is the emergence of technocracy, not as an external phenomenon to politics, but as an internal discourse of legitimacy, if you like. So it's very political. I mean, it can be the basis for party politics. You can have parties that I think even self-identify as being a bit technocratic. And Macron's does. Macron does. I mean, it's got that, uh, I keep seeing that picture of that mathematician. You know, the guy, the kind of France's number one mathematician who's now going to be an elected representative. Well, I think Macron quite openly does. I mean, it has this anti-political quality or this anti-traditional political class quality to it, which is what makes it important. It also has, I suppose what you'd say is ordinary people. So citizens are then brought in as experts as well. And this kind of conjoining of citizen expert is a new kind of political subject, but I think is what we're seeing. And yes, I think technocracy shouldn't really be thought of just as institutions that are outside of party politics, but as an internal part of the way we think of politics today. So what are the pitfalls of that then? Because, I mean, the obvious one seems to be that politics as practiced by elected representatives is always messy and involves lots of compromises and you have to sell what you've done often not on the basis that it is technically the correct solution, but it was the only thing you could cobble together under pressure. And so there is presumably a risk here of a big mismatch between the pitch, which is, you know, we're going to do it differently, and the fact that the institutions are almost certainly going to produce similar kinds of cobbled together solutions. 
I mean, I think there are two dangers. Maybe, you know, there are other sort of thoughts on this, but two dangers. I think one is the difficulty to achieve compromise. I think if you have this kind of technocratic vision of the world as part of your political pitch, then actually makes compromise difficult. Well, because there's a right answer. Well, and and the second thing is it has an anti-pluralist element to it. I mean, if you think that you have the right answer, then the other person, by definition, must have the wrong answer. And so it's about whether you're right and wrong on certain policy questions, rather than just saying, well, I think this is the right thing to do because of the values that I have. You have different values. You're not wrong. I just disagree with you. That's the politics that we're more familiar with. So I think it may introduce this lack of compromise and also this lack of tolerance for the other person's view because you think they're just wrong. Not that they have different values, but they're just wrong in practice. And Helen's going to come in in a second. And if it is true, and we've talked about this before, that the big divide in our politics now, and we've seen a bit of it in our election and certainly in the French election, is between people who have moved through the education system, often to university and beyond, and people who left school earlier or with fewer qualifications. There presumably is a big risk here that that gulf widens for all the ordinary people experts that we've got here, that actually these people who Hugo said who stayed at home, many of them, do not feel represented by this new party of experts. I think that's right. I think not just widened, I think it becomes actively politicised. We think a lot of of problems, a lot of dangers associated with that. I think the real test case for what's going to happen in France, which I've said before the election is, is whether Macron can actually deliver on reforming the French economy in a way that allows the French government to finally challenge in any significant way Germany's position and Germany's dominance of the Eurozone. If it can succeed at that, then he will have fundamentally changed French politics. If he can't, then he won't have done. And I think there is a kind of pattern. If you go back to, you know, like the beginnings of the Eurozone and why we are where we are you know, on this, that essentially was the then French government saying to the German government or the West German government, actually, as it then was, we want to democratise the exchange rate mechanism, which was the exchange rate system that was in operation within the European community, minus Britain at the time. The Germans conceded that, except they said, we won't do the democracy bit of it, we'll just do the monetary union bit of it. If you then skip on to 2012, when Hollande won, essentially what he did on winning was to go, including with Macron as one of his advisers, to Berlin and say, look, the French have voted for the left again. We're going to now make common calls with the social democratic parties in, in the Mediterranean countries, and you're going to have to listen because we've now got an, an access of the centre-left to put up against you. And the Germans said, well, thank you very much, but it doesn't really make any difference to what we're going to do. And if you come back and reform the French economy, then we might start listening to you. Now, this time, the French are taking technocratic politics, I think, and saying, let's see if we can change France's position within the Eurozone that way. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm saying that we've come full circle. Do you think it has a better chance of working? The reason why I think in one sense it does is simply because if you look at the position of the French budget deficit, it's now, three. I think it's 3.4%. Now, when Hollande was starting, it was, I think, 4.8%. I could have got that wrong for the 2010, but it, it, it was in that ballpark. Now, you could say there was a lot of effort, not immediately, because Hollande was trying his, let's be the centre-left strategy to begin with, but from 2014 onwards to try to get the French budget deficit down, and it's gone down, but not that much. Now, you could say there's only 0.4% to go before the Germans start taking the French a bit more seriously, But that isn't going to be easy when France is heading towards 100% of GDP for its state debt. I completely agree with the analysis of Helen. I obviously 
think there's a bit more chance that this is going to happen. Some of it actually probably has nothing to do with Macron. I think he's probably in a quite fortunate position in the sense that the economy seems to be picking up and employment has coming down. Many of those were reforms that actually Hollande that started, but we're only seeing the benefits of it now. He has this huge majority, so and it seems people are willing to give him a chance for the reform of the labor law. He will face undeniable protests in the streets. That will be his first big test if he faces that down, for good or for bad. If he faces it down, then the Germans will start taking him seriously. He only has 0.4 to go down on the budget. I think that's also possible. And I think Helen's perfectly right. I think, that, I mean, Macron was part of Hollande when he was trying to negotiate with the Germans. He realized that allying yourself with the southern kind of democratic countries isn't the way to work, the way he's tried to actually tell Germany that you're a reliable partner and you can start from there. I think that has a chance of succeeding. I would just want to go back to the legislative. I completely also agree with what Chris was saying. What's, for once, I think we all agree, maybe this is not what we want in the podcast, but I think the Particularly other term, we've all just been wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of the threats that's going to come forward is the fact that this new National Assembly that we're going to have in France between 70 and 90% of people will be new. This is going to be a complete change. So there's a real kind of mini revolution going on here. Do you have any sense of how many of them are university graduates? Sorry, so 90% of the people on Macron's come from like the highest social class, like ABC or whatever it is. And the term I use, technocratic, but the term I use also in the piece was expert. So these are people who are considered to be experts in their field. Macron's whole idea was to bring civil society back and you pick people, like you'd pick a new elite. A lot of them are business people. Those who are the more technocratic element, they're running big uh, hospitals or whatever else. They were kind of high up technocrats. The concern then is going to be, you're going to have a lot of people in National Assembly who don't have that much experience because there's this anti-career politician element going on, it means that Macron, it's already been the case, he runs a very, very centralized and a very, very authoritarian kind of line. And that will probably be even more accentuated because of the parliament. And this is one of the debates that's been happening yesterday, is that Macron wants to bring some of the measures of the state of emergency into the constitution, which would give him obviously even more power. And so one of the big concerns going forward is whether this is going to be a more authoritarian regime. But just to finish, I think Hannan is absolutely right in saying, I think with Macron, we are, whether we like it or not, going to see a realignment of French politics. If he succeeds, then you'll get a, a kind of a debate over the legacy of Macron, and there'll probably be a right and left-wing version of that. If he fails, then the extremes will have more and more kind of power. So that's the real cutting point. I think the interesting comparison is between what's going on in France and the En Marche movement and the Five Star movement in Italy. Macron is, if you like, a sort of a more sophisticated version of Beppe Grillo and his En Marche movement is a more sophisticated, more educated, more powerful version of the Five Star Movement. And you had this arrival of, they called them the Grillini, the, the new deputies in the Italian Parliament who had no experience whatsoever, very similar to what's going on in France. And they, they weren't people with much authority. They hadn't been running hospitals, they'd been nurses. And so it's a different sort of category of person. But there's still the novelty is the, is the same. And I think there's something that, you know, if you think of what unites Italy, France, the UK in the recent election, there is something about... Um, the traditional political system and structures being fundamentally challenged. And the great irony, I suppose, in the British case is that that actually worked its way through the existing two-party system. But there's no doubt that support for Corbyn was partly driven by 
the sense of, of Theresa May as being so wooden, so inauthentic, so unable to depart from these sound bites that she'd pitched her campaign around. There was a slight sort of anti-establishment ring to the whole surge, I think, behind Corbyn. And that does suggest that the category maybe is not the left or the revival of the left, but again, this kind of anti-systemic quality to politics that's working its way uh, across Europe. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just to go back to the point about how hard it is to know what's happening in politics. When we talked in January, the only representative of the left who seemed to have a future in front of him was Schultz in Germany. So back then when we assumed Corbyn was in trouble, Trump was about to arrive in the White House, maybe Fillon was going to be the next president of France. That, we certainly had a conversation when that looked very likely and Macron was this kind of outsider. But Schultz was the one who was kind of on the march in Germany. And now that has been turned on its head, right? There are all of these exciting things going on. And Germany now looks like the place where the left is trapped by conventional approaches to politics. That's a, that's a six-month story. None of us were... No, I'm not really, blaming us. No, I'm no, just but saying... I, but I think we all generally quite sceptical about this Schultz bounce. No, true. Um, no, and you were particular. I'm not... Yeah. But I think there was another thing there, and I think there were reasons um, that we perhaps did articulate uh, as to why Germany looks the most stable place, and that is, is because its politics simply have not been turned upside down by the changes in you know, relative power um, that these other countries that we're talking about has. You know, the United States has a certain version of a post-imperial crisis. I don't entirely like using the term empire, but I'm just going to use it a bit more metaphorically, you know, losing its influence um, in the Middle East. Britain was in a, you know, deeply complicated relationship with the European Union. France is in a deeply complicated relationship with the Eurozone. Germany just simply doesn't have these kinds of problems. So you would expect in that sense its politics to be stable. And what's the other thing that the US and the UK have in common if they are the leading lights in the Anglosphere, this may be a story about the crisis of the Anglosphere. And it's not surprising that if that way of leading the world is in real decline, you're going to get these dramatic But shifts. also, it's quite possible that the story of the Anglosphere, I'm not entirely sure that I like, in fact, I don't no, like the phrase, but let's, let's, use it for, like. let's use it for the sake of argument, is also the, the place where there has been a more of a tradition, shall we say, of, of democratic politics working these kinds of things out. That's one of the sort of claims that is made about what the Anglosphere is, is if there is such a thing. So again, you would expect the political turbulence in the place that more allows for it. So let's pick up on that then and the point that Chris made, which is one of the ironies of our election result in the UK, is that it produced this dramatic, unexpected sort of revelation, as always with these elections of a country we didn't quite realise we were living in until after the votes were counted filtered through a system that's produced this very peculiar and seemingly unstable result. 
Now, one possible consequence of that, you might think, is people thinking, well, there's something wrong with the system. I mean, the system allowed for change, but it's going to give us a Conservative DUP government that could cling on for three or four years. The House of Lords is unreformed. People are once again saying the House of Lords is going to have to play a leading role in in Brexit and sort of channeling the views of the 48%, but it's not clear on what basis, given that it has all of these Lib Dems and others who haven't got a lot of democratic legitimacy. And if it's true, people sometimes say, so the British people have spoken, and what they said was, we don't want a Tory government, we don't want a Labour government. But they definitely didn't say, we want a government where the DUP are holding the largest party in Parliament to ransom. And yet there seems to be less prospect than ever of this system being reformed. I mean, the Tories don't want to reform it. Labour certainly don't want to reform it because one more push and they get their, you know, the thing that people like Corbyn and Macdonald have always dreamed of, which is to be able to rule through a parliament that is broadly sovereign because we've left the European Union. So the question is, given that the, the election has produced a result that seems to have exposed the system, why is the system more entrenched than ever? But it's not just a matter of the current system serving the interests of the existing party elites. Don't forget that when the coalition government put a referendum before the people asking for a mild change to the voting system, but a mild change that was exactly in tune with the kind of reforms that reform-minded people want to see. A lot of reform-minded people wanted to go much, much further. But almost everyone who thinks about constitutional reform, electoral reform, thinks that the alternative vote system is better than the one we have at the moment. And that referendum failed badly. A lot of it was to do with the shenanigans surrounding the coalition and the way in which the Conservatives used the referendum as a chance to screw over Nick Clegg and show them who was in charge in the coalition. But the arguments of the reformers just didn't get much traction with the broader public. So on the one hand, you can create lots of high-level, pointy-headed arguments for why the current system is illegitimate or undemocratic or produces perverse outcomes. But actually, the current system has a great deal of legitimacy among ordinary voters. When they were given the chance to tinker with it, they said they preferred the status quo. I think the other thing is that the system isn't working to the extent that it's not working at the moment. You know, though I'm a little bit hesitant about saying that simply having Northern Irish politics in um, the politics of Britain is the system not working, given that we are, you know, in a union of the United Kingdom is that Liberal Democrats are simply unwilling to recognise the reality of the situation that we're in. And that is is that we have a hung parliament. You would expect the, the third party in such circumstances to engage in discussions with the party with the largest number of seats. And it not only said it wasn't going to do that, it said it wasn't going to engage with the, the party with the second number, largest number of seats either. And we can put this down to what happened last time in terms of the coalition, as Chris has said. But again, you know, the problems of the Liberal Democrats and the coalition were entirely self-inflicted because of the tuition fees question. And I do think, I know I've said this before, that tuition fees is a very important part of the story of the way our politics has played out over the last 10 years or so. And the legacy of what the Liberal Democrats did in 2010 in terms of saying that they were going to abolish fees, knowing perfectly well that if they made a an agreement with either party after the election that because of the commission that had been put in place about tuition fees that they were going to have to abandon that promise is a significant part of where we are now. And of course they're not the third party. The actual third know, party yeah. would under is no circumstances yeah. do a deal with the currently yeah, largest party in Parliament. Which is, again, for the system to work in a more fluid way there would need to be some more flexibility rather than Tories a, and Progressive yeah, Alliance. You wouldn't have Tories 
uh, you wouldn't have the third party being a party that was opposed to the union and the fourth party being one that was opposed to being in any coalition or having any supply and confidence agreement with any other party. In defence of this system, I suppose what you could say, because I was trying to think, what what would it take for people? I mean, I agree with Chris that there is a you know, the, the legitimacy claims of this system do seem to resonate with people. You can kick the bastards out. You do get surprising and dramatic changes and exciting changes and politics gets these kind of bursts of energy and we've just seen one of them and this system definitely facilitates that but what would it take for people to start to lose confidence in it and certainly you can imagine a scenario where regardless of which the party is a smaller party which seems to be outside of the mainstream of British politics holds the government to ransom and so on but then the system is designed at that point to break down internally and to trigger another election I mean it's not as if the DUP could hold the Conservative Party to ransom for long without parliamentary government triggering in its own terms a crisis and then presumably another election. I mean, it's still the system still has that break point in it, doesn't it? There is an interesting difference, though, compared to past episodes, which is that if an election is triggered and the voters think that one party has behaved badly in the previous crisis, the electorate has an opportunity to punish that party. But we now have two relevant parties, the DUP and the Scottish National Party, which are very regionally focused uh, in Northern Ireland and Scotland, respectively. And the British system doesn't handle that kind of representation quite so well. And to see that, you have to look at the way that the Irish crisis played out over the second half of the the last quarter of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. From the 1870s, you had a large block of Irish nationalist MPs in Parliament who pursued any number of tactics of non-cooperation and so on. And that wasn't a system where ultimately the democratic system was able to reorganise itself in a straightforward way. That story ended with the breakup of the Union with Irish independence. And also had the possibility of a civil war coming into it before we got to the First World War. I mean, that, that is kind of like the example of catastrophic failure, actually, of the system. And nobody thinks that the Scottish story will end in civil war. On the other hand, we're wrong about everything, so maybe it will. <laughs> but, but certainly, the managers of the Scottish National Party have been studying closely the politics involving the Irish party in the late 19th and early 20th century, because that's the story they want to rerun. And you might say, well, in that case, if the union can't cope with this kind of politics, so much for the union, and that's the position of the nationalists. But of course, we also know from the referendum that Scottish nationalism, in the sense of wanting a move to full independence, is still a minority opinion in Scotland. And presumably the other challenge here, and maybe this is just another way of saying what you've been saying, is that if it does go wrong, if the attempt to cobble together one of these minority governments fails, particularly if one party overplays its hand and the voters would like to punish that party, but we can't punish the DUP from Cambridge or indeed from anywhere outside of Northern Ireland. And actually, it seems much more likely that they wouldn't be punished by their own constituents any more than Sinn Féin are punished for not taking their seats in Parliament, which is allowing this coalition to be formed. After all, if Sinn Féin took their seats, it would be harder. That that part of the system there isn't any way to get from A to B, to get from the people who the voters would like to say have been playing around with the system being punished, they're more likely to be rewarded by their own constituents because their own constituents will be fine with that. I mean, I think this is where the fact that we we have a, such a complex multinational territorial union in British politics really does make it difficult to make any comparisons with with what is going on anywhere else because you, you, you can't look at other any other Western democracy where this kind of scenario really would play itself out. Even in Spain, you can't say that this is the kind of scenario could could play itself out. So we're trying to deal with... 
you know, political turbulence that is part of more general political turbulence in the post-2008 world and dealing with what have for centuries been really difficult questions about the territorial union of the United Kingdom. So I'd like to ask one final question about one of the ironies of our election, looking at it less than a week out. I'm sure many more will emerge. Um, And again, this relates to what's going on in politics in other countries too. So this election, though, turnout among the 18 to 24-year-olds may not have been as high as we first thought. There were queues at the University of Kent, but that doesn't tell us a lot, except that on the day it made it clear that something was happening. But the outsider candidates who have proved remarkably successful in the last year have been very old men. (laughs) Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump and Mélenchon in France. The most exciting young politician in Britain, the one who's getting the most attention at the moment, is a Tory. It's Ruth Davidson. And at some point, presumably, we're going to get not just a generational sort of shift of emphasis among the electorate, but also among the politicians themselves. So Macron is young. He's the one. But he's, in a sense, he's not an outsider. And certainly he's not one of these insurgents. But at the moment in British politics, it's this weird thing that it's Corbyn and MacDonald who are enthusing the young. And the young politician who's getting the most attention is a Scottish Conservative who isn't even in the House of Commons. At some point, do you think we're going to get a generational shift in party leadership in this country too? I mean, even the Liberal Democrats, actually, they're probably in this parliament going to have to fall back on Vince Cable as the person to give them authority. I mean, it's, Theresa May seems to belong to an older generation. It's, it's old people's politics still, but the young are much more engaged. Obviously, there'll be a generational shift before too long, because that's how generations work. But <laughs> And old people just get older. And, and then they die. Um, but there's something, I think, interesting with the Labour Party, which is that I think the Labour Party does have something of a problem, which is that this huge number of MPs entered Parliament in 1997, and they've been whittled down by defeats over the years and retirements and so on. So there has been some new blood coming into the Parliamentary Labour Party, but there hasn't been that much. And I think it's been easier for the Conservatives to recruit um, uh, a younger cohort of politicians because they had winnable seats coming up in not 2001, but in 2005, in 2010, they were winning seats, and that allowed them to a certain extent to rejuvenate their parliamentary party. Labour hasn't had that opportunity because the story since 1997 has been, more or less, with each election, losing seats. They've had a bit of an injection of new faces with the current election result, but that will take a while for it to feed into new leadership. And I do think that's been one of the difficulties that the Labour Party has faced. And part of the story about why they've had so few really effective politicians under the age of 40 for the last decade or so. I think it has something to do with the quality of the ideas. Um, So if you take the British Labour Party, it is not a coincidence that those people currently leading the party are those whose ideas are themselves very dated. These are older traditions, ideologically speaking. When the Labour Party did renew itself with a new ideological tradition, whatever we may think of it, new Labour, you had a younger generation of of leaders coming through, relatively speaking. So I think if you were to imagine the Labour Party developing totally new ideas about what this country should be like from its perspective, you'd probably have younger people articulating them. But Jeremy Corbyn and, and those around him are dating back from the time when the ideas that they, you know, that they hold uh, first emerged. So it's not a coincidence, I think, that we have this kind of curious mismatch. I think the really striking thing is there's actually um, Generation X as politicians, because if you go back and look at the 2010-2015 Parliament, 
that at the top of the of both of the two main parties, indeed actually of the three main parties, including the Liberal Democrats in that, is dominated entirely by Generation X. And actually there are very, you know, people born between about 1966 and 1971. It's actually a really small part. Um, but that was what the New Labour was about. Once and it, but it, was a, it was a narrow cohort Absolutely, even than that. Yeah. It was many of them, them Oxford-educated, PPE, PPE, all of that. And they knew Absolutely. each other from and uh, if student days. And they've been wiped out. And the only people, are, I mean, just literally off the top of my head here, I think kind of who are standing in Parliament as a result are Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. And Yvette and, Cooper. Oh, yeah. But she's not going to, presumably she's not going to be in the shadow cabinet. And striking in that sense that... Gove and Johnson are both from Oxford, but Gove read English and Johnson read classics. I mean, that, that PPE cohort has been absolutely wiped out. In one sense, what was surprising was is how much political influence at the elite level that Generation X got as quickly as it did. It overtook the later baby boomers who just kind of disappeared. And so the people actually who are kind of Theresa May's generation until she's, she's now come back. And then what we've seen is the wipeout of that. Again, I think you can put it down to hubris of having power much too quickly and now being replaced by, at the leadership level, back to baby boomers. But strikingly, that Generation X voters seem to be the ones who've delivered this um, sizeable vote in terms of the portion of the vote anyway to the Labour Party. I want to give the last word to Hugo. What generation does Macron belong to? What's so interesting and slightly otherworldly about him is he just seems this person who's just sort of on the cusp of lots of different things without having a completely, seen from the outside, sharp either generational or personal identity. Is he Generation X? Does, does that even exist in France? Mine? He's my generation. He's 30-odd and that's this is what you, but it makes a difference whether you're young 30s or late 30s because either then you're an old millennial or you're well, a without young generation my age, um, I'm close but people to want Michael. to know more about who we are <laughs> Hugo how old are you I'm 36 Macron is 39 a lot of the people are coming in to be the deputies are late 30s so okay let me ask you the question differently then what generation do you think you belong to in terms of identity do you think about it like that are you a I don't know what I, no. I don't know what the categories are now. Are we in Z or you're in, O you're young, or something? You're young Generation X, but young, and there is a difference between older Generation X and younger Generation okay. X. Well, there you go. I, do, I don't think about it. And millenn- I'm getting confused. Are millennials are people who the the, the 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 oldest they can be. There's different ways of calculating this, but the oldest that they can be is about 33, 34. Oh, Hugo, so. I'm not a millennial. That's fine with me. But the one thing I would wanted to say is that if this gen, I mean, I think what Macron shows as opposed to the other politics that we're seeing around is that if this new generation, my generation, wants to come to power, they have to seize it. And so one of the differences between the French system and the UK system is that the UK system seems quite sclerotic, and then you have these two political parties, and that's how the political system is set up. Macron got to power because precisely said, no, I'm stepping outside of that system and I want to change it from without, not really from within. So the question is, and this is a debate that I know that's been happening in the US about whether the younger people who are Bernie Sanders supporters, whether they want to take the Democratic Party from within, because that's the only way they seem to be able to do it in the US, because it's very, very rigid. In France, it's like, it's maybe a bit more fluid, so they're able to get out of it. And that's the way the generation has come to power. But you have to, my generation has to seize it. I realised when we started, I said who everyone was, and then people just started speaking randomly. So you have to put voices to names and names to voices. So that clearly was Hugo. <laughs> Chris Brooke was the person who knew all about Irish politics of the late 19th century. Chris Bickerton was the person who knows all about populism and many other things. And Helen is Helen. And we'll be back, some combination of us, next week and beyond to keep talking about these things. It doesn't get any less interesting. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. But it does get much more draining.
that in. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm young generation X. I like the way you said my generation. You should have said my, 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 my generation. You can't be a generation, I'm afraid. You can't be claimed to be in my generation. The generation Y. The voice of my that's generation. Just another, that's just another term for millennial. Is it? So it's not a difference in generation Y and millennial? No. Uh, the generation above is the baby boomers. The baby is and the one above that is a silent generation. And then the one above that is the greatest, greatest generation. generation yeah. And the one above that is like old, 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 old people who are dead. <laughs> right? John Norton published a blog saying what he loves about this podcast is the way we just all fess up to how little we know. <laughs> Although someone tweeted that you routinely underplay your knowledge. Oh. No, I don't. Can we put that on the record? <laughs> this, this is the That's absolute so limit of my knowledge. We don't know what we're talking about. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.